When I was six years old, I played Little League Baseball for the first time, my first time at organized sports whatsoever. My dad had been a football coach, so I knew football, but did not know baseball. And early in the game, when my team was in to bat, I went up to coach and said, hey, coach, when is halftime? I've got to go to the bathroom. And he said, Donaldson, this ain't football. Get outfield. And so I went back outfield to left field where I squatted and peed my pants. That was a long game. And it was a long season. Every time I was at the plate, coach gave me the take the pitch sign. So I got zero hits all season long. Now, sometimes I was walked. And one time I made my way around to third base. Don't remember if I was batted around the bases or if I stole, I probably didn't steal. But I was on third base and my teammate who was batting was walked and I thought that meant a free walk home. But our bases weren't loaded. And the pitcher took the ball, I mean, he had the ball and he ran and took me out. He didn't throw me out, took me out. And I said, I thought this was baseball. The coach is like, Donaldson, get back to third. Needless to say, there are experiences we have as youngsters, adolescents that follow us throughout our whole lives, and they make us feel inferior or insecure. And I know you can relate to some of that, but I know that's been my experience as well. This morning, we continue in a series on healing, and we're talking about healing from the inside out. It's a healing that only God can bring, and kind of overarching symbolism for the series, we talked about the redwood tree, if it were cut in half and we could see its rings and we would know that there were seasons when water was a plenty and you can see healthy growth and there are seasons of drought and you can tell it in the rings. And there's that one time that lightning struck the tree and you can see that. And there are times when you can see that forest fires were close. And if we could take a look at the cross section of our life, we might see similar rings, times of great joy and also times of deep despair and for some of us, times of deep trauma. Places that only Jesus Christ can touch and bring healing. It's possible. And that's what we're after this morning, that type of healing. And so last week we talked about guilt, grace, and forgiveness. And we said that the reason many of us don't experience healing is because we are debt collectors. And the only way to experience healing is to receive that forgiveness first and foremost from Jesus Christ. And the proof that we've received it from him is the power to forgive others. In fact, he said as much. And so it's not, it's not behavioral. It's the reality of who we are, that we are forgiving. It's not being the better, bigger person. It's being Christian. This morning, we're talking about perfectionism. Next week, we'll close this series out by talking self-surrender versus low self-esteem. Those are two different things. I'm so grateful for our Wesleyan heritage, John Wesley, the founder of the 18th century Methodist movement that we are a part of. It was birthed in a hotbed of revival. 
John Wesley was a very learned man, well-educated. He studied, studied at Oxford, but he cultivated a systematic theology while running, boots on the ground, trying to keep up with this move of God that took England by storm, crossed the Atlantic Sea, caught the Americas on fire as well, and that's who you are. And within that movement, this idea of Christian perfection was birthed, and it's not anything new. It wasn't anything new. He doesn't have the market cornered on Christian perfection, but he articulated sanctification and holiness. That's what we're talking about with respect to Christian perfection. This idea that we are saved once, absolutely, but we are being saved. And if we just stop right there, we miss out on all this other being saved. And so Christian perfection is this process of turning our lives over, our whole lives over to Jesus, the whole life through. The misnomer of Christian perfection is that we're talking about behavior. That's not what Christian perfection is. That's perfectionism. So this series is inspired by a book called Healing for Damaged Emotions, written by Dr. David Siemens, prolific pastor and professor at Asbury Seminary way back in the late 60s, early 70s. And he defined perfectionism as a constant pestering, pervading feeling of never being good enough, never doing enough to please everyone from self to others to God, and it is plagued by inner demons and inner voices that speak to us, self-belittling and self-contempt with a super sensitivity to the opinions, approval, and disapproval of others. And all of this is served up with a side of guilt, because you know I could always be doing more. I could always be better. I want... I want to make sure that you understand Christian perfection is the process of sanctification where the whole of life is governed by the love of God. And we're growing in that and our love for God is growing and our love for others is manifesting. Perfectionism leaves us with a warped, distorted view of God if that's a God at all. There was this girl named Beth who had an unpredictable childhood upbringing, walked around on eggshells all day long. Her father was an alcoholic. Her mother was a dormant, quiet and gentle volcano. Never knew when she was going to erupt with anger. And Beth said, I never knew if I was gonna get hugged or slugged. And I could never figure out the reason for either one. So of course... She thought that God was every bit as unpredictable, irrational, unreliable as her parents. And she said of God, I never knew if I was going to get hugged or slugged by him either. That's no way to live. And there's no doubt that our family of origin is the breeding ground for emotional cripples. And then we have experiences in the classroom or on the sports field where there are unpleasable people in our lives and unacceptable selfhood, unrealistic expectations, unattainable standards. 
unclear signals, unendurable conflicts, and all of, thing, all of these things program people to have the wrong kind of response. In fact, it's a reaction to the living of life as it happens. Perfectionism produces a distorted view of God with feelings of doubt and rebellion and anger against that lowercase g God that you can never please. In the scripture that Miranda read, Jesus debunked that, pushed back hard. And it comes after what she read came after two experiences that he had that if we had had, we might have been left emotionally devastated. So if your Bibles are still open, look at the top of Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, and you'll see a heading that likely says, John the Baptist questions Jesus. He questioned whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, precursor, forerunner to this movement of God, he baptized Jesus and then waited for Jesus to unleash holy hell, holy heaven on the Romans, and it never happened the way that John realized or hoped, and he sent word out of prison to Jesus to ask, are you the one we should be expecting? Are you the Messiah, or we should be expecting someone else to come? And then in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, we see woes pronounced on all these unrepentant Towns, and what that really means is all of these towns flat out rejected who Jesus was. And we know the rest of the story. Both of those experiences phased Jesus not one bit. His face was set like flint on Jerusalem on the cross. He was sure of who he was, his identity secure, mission lived out. But when we are questioned, or when we are challenged, when we don't meet expectations or live our lives trying to gain the approval of others and we fail, whenever we are rejected, it hurts. And Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, they are an invitation to us all to move towards him. He is the goal. Jesus is the prize. So much so that Third century apostolic father, St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. He's the only one who can satisfy truly. And his invitation is to all of those who are weary, who are tired, the result of hard work or heavy burdens. Those Greek words speak of grind and desperation, and if you are being crushed underneath the weight of perfectionism, Jesus' invitation is for you. It's for me, it's for us in this room. He will give you rest. He will bring renewal and refreshment. He's the only one who can. And this invitation, when Jesus gave it the first time, it was for all people everywhere. It still is. But think about what happened those two times in chapter 11, rejected and doubted. And Jesus still gives this invitation to the crowd, this call to discipleship. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Literally, be my disciples. 
It's like another invitation given way back in the beginning of his ministry. Follow me. That's Jesus' invitation to you and me. Take my yoke upon you. And in Judaism, the yoke was a figurative way to signify, symbolize submission, discipline, and obedience. So on the one hand, the yoke was a farm implement put on oxen or other animals so that they might plow the field or carry heavy loads. But on the other hand, the yoke was a symbol of domineering authority laid upon the neck of a conquered people as a symbol of their enslavement. It was humiliating and destructive. But Jesus tells us, verse 30, his yoke is easy. That word can also be translated as kind. Jesus' yoke fits, does not chafe, doesn't irritate. It offers the grace of fulfilling, gives our lives purpose and meaning for all who do follow him, those who put this yoke on. And perfectionism does not offer that type of peace, that type of purpose. Author, professor, social worker Brene Brown said of perfectionism, when perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun, and fear is the annoying backseat driver. We struggle with perfectionism in areas where we are most vulnerable to shame. Perfectionism is a way of thinking, if I look perfect, if I live perfect, work perfect, I can avoid or at least minimize criticism, blame, ridicule. Perfectionism is the 20-ton shield we carry around, hoping that it'll keep us from being hurt because the only thing that perfectionism cares about is what other people think. So what are the symptoms of perfectionism? Dr. Siemens, in his book, lists five. There are probably many, many more, but the ones that he suggests are, first, the tyranny of the oughts. Our lives are ruled by, I ought to do more. I ought to think a certain way. I ought to be quiet. I got nothing to say. I ought to behave. And the tyranny of the oughts leads to self-depreciation, where we believe the messages the world tells us, our parents our friends, coaches, teachers, sometimes preachers. And the reality is those messages that we hear are not the words that people used. We don't hear things the way they come across. And so we hear things like, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You don't work hard enough. And worst of all, as we hear those things and internalize them, we start to think, Maybe that's how God looks at me. Mm. That stirs up anxiety within us. We begin to feel inferior. We become insecure. Those things get the best of us. And rather than exercise faith and step out in courage, we are frozen right in our tracks, debilitated, paralyzed by fear. That's when legalism sets in because we want things so black and white. We want to know exactly what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do, what to think, what not to think. 
That'll keep us in line so that people will think the best of us. We got to put up that front and live behind the facade. And we're talking about a yoke of slavery that really weighs us down. And when we live up under that yoke, it produces anger towards everybody. We get mad at ourselves. We get mad at others. And if you're real good, you get angry at God. And oftentimes, this anger leads to one of two things. A break away. I ain't got time for you, Lord. And we walk away from the faith, from the church altogether, or it leads to a breakdown. Because it is hard to keep the plate spinning. It's hard to please everybody. It's hard to keep that front up all the time. None of us can do it. Perfectionism is no way to live. It is a very suffocating, slow death. The perfectionist has a distorted understanding of who God is. Really, it's a caricature of a God who's never satisfied, a God who is so demanding, we can never please him no matter how hard we try, no matter what we give up, or hold on to, this God shows us his nail scar hands and says, where are yours? What have you done for me lately? That's not your God. Let me remind you that when the time was right, our God stepped down out of heaven in the person and work of Jesus who gave God a face and a name. He loved. Jesus lived and died a brutal death taking on your punishment and mine, defeating sin and shame once for all forever. Death could not keep him down. Hell could not hold him. And on the third day, he got up. Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And when he did, because he did, he went from being some one person on the outside of us to the one who lives inside of those who claim his name, Jesus, those who realize their need, and we repent and we receive everything that he has for us. We are saved. We are being saved. That is sanctification. That is Christian perfection. That is who he is. So what's the cure to Christian perfection? I want to give you two words. And the first word is grace. That's the cure for Christian perfection. You can't win. You can't do it. The end of your rope. And so we receive what God has for us, salvation, his presence. That's grace. And we are not grace factories. We are grace funnels So grace comes down and it flows right out of those who've received it, those who've experienced it. Because somewhere, somewhere, someone else is exactly where you have been. And we get to share the work of God's grace in our lives. Thank you, Ayla, for sharing the work of God's grace in your lives. This diagram is courtesy of Carolyn Moore, her book, The Encounter of the Holy Spirit. That's how grace works. And that is the only solution for you to know, goodness gracious, Jesus loves you so much. 
You don't have to earn it. And you sure don't deserve it. But he's given it to you. So we are saved. What's the second word? It takes time. This journey is a process. And if you think you can pray a prayer, do a discipline, click your heels three times and you're healed, you're wrong. But the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you. And he's in the person beside you, behind you, in front of you. And like that grove of redwoods out in West California, our roots are intertwined. We get to experience the strength of community, the beauty that is the body of Christ, realizing that identity as a people who are being saved to the uttermost all across the living of the rest of our lives. Grace, time. That's what God invites us into. That's who you are. That's what it means to be Christian. And so I pray that we would cut ourselves some slack, give ourselves some grace, and take the next faithful step, do the next faithful thing that we know to do in this journey of Christian perfection. It's not perfectionism. It's perfection that only comes from Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, longing for the cure, hungry for more of you. You're the only one who truly satisfies. And so bless us with your presence. We pray that you would save us to the uttermost. And we pray that you would continue the work that you have already begun even in the moments that remain this morning. Come, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.